if you're already at Jeremiah 11, you might also put a finger in 2 Kings chapter 22 and a bunch of other places, to be honest. We're going to be bouncing a little bit tonight. Instead of going deeper into Jeremiah, we're going to go deeper in the background to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 11 begins a new section of the book. And as we mentioned last week, and as we mention almost every week, I think literally every week, Jeremiah is not arranged chronologically. And in some cases, we know what was written, when it was written, what the context was, what the background was, what Jeremiah was addressing. A lot of times we don't. As we turn to chapter 11, the beginning of this next section, it starts in a relatively straightforward fashion. We've got a pretty good idea when chapter 11 was written, when, when the message was spoken and then later written down. And we're almost for sure that chapter 12 follows, well, chapter 12 follows chapter 11. We're, we're sure that they were given at the same time, that they were part of a, a, a bigger unit. We're less sure when this section ends. It starts at chapter 11, continues in chapter 12. Does it end with 12, with 13, with 17? That's where different people disagree because there's good arguments for a lot of different scenarios, none of which we're going to worry about tonight because we're not going to get that far. We're not even going to make it all the way through chapter 11. But we'll start. Chapter 11, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Jeremiah, tell them this. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so that you will be my people and I will be your God so that I might establish the oath which I've sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> what covenant? Feels like we just stepped on a moving train. Let's take a moment and get some background because God is starting in the middle. Let's flip over to 2 Kings 22. Keep a finger here because obviously we're just starting. We're coming back. But 2 Kings 22, we get a little background from what scholars believe is the context of what Jeremiah just said, what the Lord just said through Jeremiah. 2 Kings 22, the year is roughly 621 BC. Josiah has ascended the throne. And one of his first orders of business is to clean up the mess left by Manasseh. Manasseh, arguably his grandfather, and arguably one of the worst kings of Judah, if not the worst. And among other things, he sent people to repair the damage and to clean out the idolatry, the damage that had been done to the temple, the idolatry that had built up, been built up even within the temple. 2 Kings 22, uh, repair, verse 5, the damages to the house. Get carpenters and builders and masons by timber and stone. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, verse 8, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave it to Shaphan and he read it. 
and then Shaphan brought it to Josiah, and he read it. Verse 11, it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's aroused against us. Why? Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah said, go, go check with God, because I think we're in big trouble. If I'm reading this right, we're in real big trouble. So Hilkiah the priest and others went to Huldah, who's just a fascinating character. Verse 15, she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, hold to the prophetess, Tell the man who sent you to me, tell Josiah, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, he, he read it right. Because, verse 17, they forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, even in the temple that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall, yes, be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to them. Tell Josiah this. Thus said the Lord God of Israel to you, Josiah, concerning the words which you heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and you wept before me. I've heard you. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. God says, Josiah, you responded well. Now, the people, not so much. And my judgment has been aroused and that isn't going to change. But you won't have to see it. Chapter 23, the king sent them together to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And so they all got together and he read to them what he read, the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord, verse 2. The king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And chapter 23 goes on to elaborate on the covenant and, and, and people saying, yes, yes, we're going to do that. Why are we going there, Patrick? Because it's, it's generally accepted that what Hilkiah found, what Josiah tore his clothes over was exactly what's in view at the beginning of Jeremiah 11, that the covenant that, that God is, is, is speaking about, the beginning of Jeremiah 11, is the covenant that Josiah just reaffirmed. It wasn't a new covenant that Josiah made at the beginning of chapter 23. It was a reaffirmation, it was a renewal of an old covenant. The old covenant that he found in what we just read was referred to as the book of the law, what most people believe was the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, deutero, we know enough to, to know that that has something to do with the number two. Second law, second repetition of the law, second reading of the law. Deuteronomy collects and consolidates a lot of things 
that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers for a second time. Why? Why is God repeating himself? Because the second time through, as it's consolidated, the law that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, as it's consolidated in Deuteronomy, is less of a narrative. It's less, this happened and then this happened. God said this and then he said this. God said this and Moses did that. It's, it's less about this happened in, in this order. And it's more, if you step back and look at it from 30,000 feet, it's more of a contract. The book of Deuteronomy, if, if you look at it as a whole, really is a covenant. And scholars say it's organized along the lines of the kind of covenant that kings would make with their subjects, not, not their individual subjects, their, their subject states. There's a word, uh, vassal states. When, when, it, when, a, when a king conquered another state, another country or a city, and said, okay, you're, you're now under our rule, there would be an agreement. Here are our expectations, and here are the consequences if the expectations aren't met. And the book of Deuteronomy follows that form. It spells out, here are God's expectations of Israel, and here are the consequences of Israel fails to follow up, follow, live, up follow, live up to its end of the, of the agreement. What kind of consequences? Well, I think we're done with 2 Kings. Flip over to, uh, to Deuteronomy. Let's put eyes there. Go to Deuteronomy 28. There's a few different places in Deuteronomy we could turn. But Deuteronomy 28 is sort of representative of what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 28, it shall come to pass if you, Israel, diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all the commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And God goes on to enumerate the blessings. But then verse 15 it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, then all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And God goes on to enumerate the curses. Verse 20, cursing, confusion, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to until you're destroyed, until you perish because of the wickedness of your doings. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Go out one way against them, flee seven ways before them. Troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Carcasses will be food for the birds of the air. Verse 29, you'll grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper. You shall only be oppressed and plundered. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. And your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. There will be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you've not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually. You'll be driven mad because of the sight that your eyes see. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. 
and, and, and so on and so on. Keep a finger there. We'll, we'll come back to Deuteronomy 28, but back to Jeremiah for a moment. Jeremiah 11, in case your head is spinning. Most, the, the reason that we just did that is that most scholars believe that this sermon, this message, this exhortation in Jeremiah 11 is given on the heels of Hilkiah rediscovering the law and, and, and through his agency Josiah rediscovering the law and beginning to put into action reforms. So Jeremiah 11, we believe, is an amplification of what Josiah had already purposed in his heart to do and what he had already called the people of Judah to do. Josiah read, hey, we're supposed to do a bunch of stuff we're not doing, and we're doing a bunch of stuff we're not supposed to be doing. And we need to change. We need to repent. And everybody said amen, but God sent Jeremiah to underline that. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the, in the wake of what we just read in, in 2 Kings, hear the words of this covenant, the one that was just rediscovered, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I really mean it. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought him out of the land of Egypt, and underlined a whole bunch of times after that. This is not a new program. And it wasn't even new when it was codified in Deuteronomy. All the way back in Exodus, God just said, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, at the foot of Mount Sinai, I'm going to go to Exodus, you don't have to. But at the foot of Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. But even as this was happening, even as the people were entering into that covenant, even as they were renewing that covenant before they entered the land during the book of Deuteronomy, God knew how the story was going to end. Go back again to Deuteronomy 28. And then we'll be done wandering, I promise. This is the part that I think got Jeremiah tearing, I'm sorry, Josiah tearing his clothes. Deuteronomy 28:47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness. Notice the past tense. For the abundance of everything. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which doesn't respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you're destroyed. 
Verse 52, they'll besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust shall come down throughout your land. They'll besiege you at all your gates throughout your land. I think that's what got Josiah tearing his clothes. Because that's written in the prophetic past tense. That's written, God who's outside of time, seeing the future as if it's already happened. And Josiah, I think, read that and understood, oh, this is us. And this is the judgment that's already been pronounced against us. And, 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 and Jeremiah, I think, is called to say, yeah, you've got it exactly right. And tell the people that if they want to forestall the judgment that they need to put themselves back under the covenant that they agreed to hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Verse 5, tell them that, Jeremiah. And I answered, end of verse 5, Jeremiah answered and said, so be it, Lord. I'll tell them, Lord. But God's not done. Verse, verse 6, God says, no, seriously. <laughs> Proclaim all these words in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. Remind people of our agreement. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, until this day, rising up early and exhorting, saying, obey my voice, starting at Mount Sinai, Again and again through 40 years in the desert. Again and again since then through prophet after prophet. I've delivered the same message, says God. I've spoken the same things. A lot of different ways through a lot of different voices. And most of the time, what have the people done? Verse 8. They did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they have, which they have not done. Have you noticed the drought? <laughs> have you noticed the things that you're now reading in the newly rediscovered book of Deuteronomy? Read a lot like front page news. Read a lot like today's headlines. There's a reason for that. Verse 9. The Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, a lot of commentators infer that there's time, that there's a passage of time between verse 8 and verse 9. That, that, that 1 through 8 happen, and then Jeremiah does what God has instructed him to do. He goes out on this mission. He proclaims what God has instructed him to proclaim. He preaches this message throughout Jerusalem and to all the cities of Judea. He goes on a preaching tour. At the end of which, he turns to the Lord in frustration. God, people didn't want to hear it. I told you everything they told you, you told me to tell them, and they didn't want to hear it. And God said, yeah, that's not new. That's people being people. You remind them of the law, and they immediately start conspiring. What's the conspiracy that God is referring to here? It may be nothing more than the conspiracy that, that exists within each of our hearts. 
to find ways to ignore the law, or perhaps the conspiracy that, that we undertake with each other and give each other permission to not follow the law. The ways in which we, we encourage each other, you know what, it doesn't really apply. God doesn't really mean it. It's not for this situation. It's not for us. Verse 10. They've turned their back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. I mean, a couple different scenarios. Some believe that, that a lot of time has passed, and verse 8 and following were actually picking up after the death of Josiah. And that the, the reforms that he undertook and the repentance that we read about while he was alive faded quickly after his death. And so what is in view here and what Jer Jeremiah is observing, what the Lord is responding to, is the people turning quickly back to, to, to their wicked ways. Yeah, Josiah tried to get him back on the right track, but it was too little too late. And that's possible. It's possible that maybe Josiah is still alive. And as Jeremiah goes out to the highways and byways, people heard what he had to say, and they just shrugged and turned right back to their sin. Maybe the reform that we read about was really very localized to Jerusalem, within the, the sound of Josiah's voice, as it were. And as Jeremiah went out to, to extend the footprint of that message, the people that were in the, the outlying parts, the, the cities of Judea, were less interested. It really doesn't matter which, which it is, because you kind of end up in the same place, don't you? First scenario is that the reform happened for a limited time. The second scenario, it happened in a limited place. But either way, it, it ends up the same. Verse 11 Surely, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape, though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem both will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, their false gods, their idols, but they will not save them at all in the time of trouble, because how could they? For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, how many, how many cities in Judah? 30, 40, 50? That's how many different idols that you had and how many different gods you worshipped. And according to the number of streets of Jerusalem, you've set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. Judgment is coming. Calamity is going to fall on Judah. And when the people don't understand what's happening or why, tell them to ask their idols. Pretty dark verses. And it's, 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 it's nothing but calamitous. But God's not even done. Again, it's always darkest before it's totally black. Verse 14, God goes a step further. He says to Jeremiah, So do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Don't pray for them. Can you think of anything worse? Some try to, some try to soften this and, and say, well, that's not God speaking to Jeremiah. That's God speaking to Judah overall, saying, 
Don't pray for yourselves until you're ready to repent. Don't pray for yourselves until you're ready to, to worship me as God alone. Not one God among any gods, but the true and living God. Until then, I don't want to hear from you. I, I have no doubt that that's true, but I don't think verse 14 is what, is, is what that means. For one thing, it's the second time that God has said to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people. And I think, I think what he's saying is what he was saying the first time. He's saying, it doesn't matter, don't waste your breath. I can't withhold judgment from people who aren't repentant. Because that's what they are. Verse 15. What is my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh has passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. You're committing spiritual adultery. You're running around with other gods and you're rejoicing in it. You're happy about it. You're proud of it. You're bragging about your spiritual whoredom. Verse 16, the Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he kindled, he's kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. Again, the prophetic past tense. God's speaking about something that hasn't happened as if it's already done. God's saying, I'm the one who planted you, Israel. I planted you and, and nurtured you and grew you into the tree that you are, and now I'm going to set fire to your branches. Verse 17, For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Same thing, just in less poetic language, in, in case they didn't get the metaphor. Hector and Grayson are going out later this month to lead worship at a, a youth conference that Pastor Alejandro and Pastor Kevin are putting on. Alejandro was a summer intern here seven years ago, and of course Kevin um, and Aaron were here more recently than that. Yeah, seven years ago. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about uh, last week, Alejandro and his wife posted pictures of their little girl playing little kid soccer, three-year-old, uh, I think four-year-old soccer. And I remember, it seems like not that long ago, that Michaela was playing little, little, little kid soccer. And little kid soccer is, is the cutest thing ever, because they just move around as a blob. You know, all of, all of these girls just chasing the ball and... And every once in a while, the ball pops out of this, this amoeba, this swarm. And then one kid runs after the ball, and then everybody else runs after that kid. But the best part about it is every once in a while, the ball pops out, and a kid runs after the ball, and everybody else runs after the ball. And you can tell the dad of the kid who's right behind the ball, because he's the one yelling, No, Margaret, you're going the wrong way! <laughs> Because they don't know. They're just running around having a good time. And it's cute when they're four years old. By the time they're seven or eight, it still happens once in a while. A lot less often, but once in a while, seven and eight-year-olds still get turned around. And they're going just full-on running toward the wrong goal. And, 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 and the dad's tone with seven and eight-year-olds is a little bit different. It's, it's a, you can hear the strain in the voice. You're going the wrong way and all the other parents are looking at me. 
But if they get to under 11 or, or, or under 13 or under 14 soccer, then it's not funny anymore. And if the same thing happens, you know, at, at that level, where, where that son, that daughter continues to go the wrong way, to shoot at the wrong goal, to play for the wrong team, there comes a point where that dad says, maybe soccer isn't your game. <laughs> and, and maybe we need to hit, go get some testing done. <laughs> God's a father. And he's saying to Israel, it's been centuries now. And for centuries, I've been shouting at you through prophets. You're going the wrong way. For centuries, I've been calling to you. You're shooting at the wrong goal. For centuries, I've been pleading with you, stop playing for the wrong team. And God has gotten to the point where he says, yeah, we can't, we can't play this game anymore. I need to take you off the field. I need to remove you from the land. God promised Abraham that the land would belong to his descendants as their everlasting possession. But he clarified to Moses, possession of the land, enjoyment of the land, God prospering in the land, that was a function of their obedience. And God is saying, yeah, <laughs> got to take you out of the land. Got to take you out of this game. God hates sin. And here on a Wednesday night, we nod our heads and we say, yeah, he does. Because we've heard that and we know that. How often do we stop to really ponder it, though? And do we really grasp or even try to grasp? I don't think we can grasp, but do we try to grasp how much God hates sin? I think it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us because we don't want to think about it. It's not fun. It's difficult for us because we still have a sin nature. And so sin, in a way, feels natural to us. So we have to battle while it feels good, but I guess God hates things that feel good? No, wait. We have to fight through our sin nature to understand what sin is to God. And here's the other thing. Most of what most of us know about sin, most, most of the understanding that we have of what sin is and what it means, we gained, we came to, after we were saved, right? And that sort of blunts the message. Sin is really bad, uh-huh. God really, really hates it, yeah. Has lots and lots of wrath toward it. Okay, but don't worry, because you're forgiven. It, it, you know, God hates it. Pours out his wrath on it. But, but not you, you're forgiven. Oh, okay, so I don't have to think about it. Ooh, I think maybe we should, at least some of the time. We're forgiven, if, if we've asked to be forgiven. We're forgiven if we understand that in Christ we can be forgiven. If we've recognized and rejoiced that at the Christ, he poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. He died in our place to, to make it possible. We're forgiven. But even so, I think it's useful. I think it's appropriate. I think it's important. I think it's vital that we ponder 
from time to time, especially when, when past passages like this prompt us to. What does that mean? What have we been forgiven from? Because Israel was a test case, right? God said, okay, let's, let's, let's create optimal circumstances for a people group to follow me. I'm going to call them out and I'm going to favor them uniquely. I'm going to singularly bless them. I'm going, to, I'm going to love them and pour my grace upon them more than any other people. I'm going to set them up for success in every way possible. And we see tonight what was the result? Wrath. What was the result? Fury. What was the outcome? Judgment. Because God is holy and he can't not be angry at sin. He's long-suffering. But eventually, it's not cute anymore. Eventually, if they haven't changed by now, they're not going to change. Eventually, it's time to take them out of the game. Eventually, God's anger must pour forth. Sin makes us God's enemies. Sin is defiance of the Creator. It's rejection of the Almighty. Sin demands judgment. And, and we've been spared. We've been shown mercy, more than mercy. We've been shown grace. We've been adopted into God's family. We're, we're God's children. But that doesn't mean that He's changed His mind about sin. God doesn't change His mind. Because God doesn't change. He's eternally who he is. He forgives. But the fact that he forgives proves that there was something about us to forgive. <laughs> sin. God hates sin. It's a rebellion against his holiness. Does he hate it any less when his children do it? I don't think so. What hurts more? When a, when a stranger hurts you? Or when your family hurts you? What wounds more deeply? When somebody that you don't know does you wrong or when people that you've worked hard to love do you wrong? God hates sin. And I think it's good to meditate on that from time to time. How often? Until we hate sin too. Father, we, we read these words and we're intimidated a little because the description of your judgment is so stark. The, the, the message is so black. But Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would draw us deeper into these things and not allow us to shrug them off and say they don't apply. Your judgment doesn't apply because your judgment was poured out on Jesus. Thank you, Father. But to really appreciate the cross, to really be given over in praise and thanksgiving to Jesus, 
we need to understand just how black sin is and just how furious you are in the face of sin. Because understanding that makes us all the more grateful, all the more in awe of the cross, all the more determined to worship you with, with our voices and with our lives. Remind us of what sin is to you, Father, because that teaches us who we are to you. Beloved and redeemed. 